I think growing up as a pastor's kid has taught me so much in leaning over and helping someone else and um, wanting for them to know Jesus, to find that joy that we know. There was so much fun and love in the church. I don't know how people, like you said, live without that much love and support. Welcome back to The Glass House. We are in the middle of a series on raising kids in The Glass House. And if you listened last week, Kelly Minter was our guest. If you have not had a chance to listen to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It is really powerful. And today we're going to hear from two Lifeway employees who also grew up in The Glass House. What I'm loving about these conversations is their stories are not all the same. You will hear that throughout this series. Some grow up in smaller churches, some grow up in larger churches, but no matter what, there is a specific and certain kind of pressure put on a child of a pastor. So enjoy this conversation with two of our Lifeway team members, Anne, Ben, and Lindley Mandrell. Lindley, we're in the studio here in Nashville, but we started a conversation that we're continuing today. Right. We were um, realizing how many Lifeway employees were, grew up as preacher's kids and how helpful that is. I mean, as we create resources for churches, it's helpful to have the um, perspective of people who have grown up in the church. <laughs> makes me think about that song, A Hundred Bad Days Make a Hundred Good Stories. Yeah. I feel like pastor's kids have great stories. That's not a Christian <laughs> song. It's not. Um, maybe edit <laughs> that out. I don't listen to secular music. Um, but we wanted to get you guys in this room. This is Joel Polk and Shelly Richardson. Thank you guys for coming in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is great. Both pastor's kids. Yeah. So why don't each of you tell just like in a snippet, like how you grew up, what kind of church it was, and maybe what you do with Lifeway real quick. Yeah. My name is Joel Polk, and I'm the manager and publisher of all small group resources, not all small group resources, but but short-term resources here. Um, and yeah, I, I grew up mainly in Middle Tennessee uh, um, in a family uh, pastored by a dad who was a pastor. My dad was a pastor. I hope this will be part of the thing that gets cut. Um <laughs> But I grew up in a home um, under a dad who was a pastor that uh, pastored a church for 28 years, mm-hmm. so a long uh, tenure at one church, pastored a couple churches when I was very, very young, um, and he was a pastor of a Southern Baptist church, so I grew up as a SBC pastor's kid. Is he the senior sure. pastor? He was a senior pastor, okay. um, planted a church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and retired there 28 years later. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's awesome. And your brother's now in ministry, too. My brother's in ministry. My my sister is a missionary in Africa, hmm. um, and I work at Lifeway. So we're very much IMB, NAM, and and uh, Lifeway. So we <laughs> you are, are wow. very, you're giving me hope that maybe yeah. one of my kids will go into ministry once they realize it's way cooler than they, <laughs> they think. They probably say that they won't, and then right. like 10 years later, they absolutely will. I, so, hope, yeah, I yeah. hope you're right. Mm-hmm. I hope you're, all right, Shelly, tell us about you. Yeah, so um, Shelly Richardson, I'm the technical product manager at Lifeway. I get to work with the IT brilliant minds, uh, mainly for Lifeway.com. And um, grew up, my dad was uh, a pastor, our younger years, every three years, two to three years, he would switch churches, Hmm. like completely different states. Um, And then around my eighth 
I think I was eight years old, we moved to Tennessee. That's where my mom's family was. So he moved here and started more of an evangelism ministry, uh, raise your own funds type ministry. Um, actually worked at Lifeway for evangelism and then became a pastor through that, like intern, interim pastor, and then pastoring a, a very small church out in Murfreesboro as well um, and been there for 20 years and then just retired a year ago. And that, I know that was a big transition for you. It's, it's been a year and the transition was intense. So I think there's a lot of stories there. A lot happens, you know, yeah. in, in church leadership and, and when things change think that's that was big you just brought up a conversation a topic that we should have um as far as raising your own funds like that's a oh. whole i mean just the stress of that on a family I, you would have a different perspective interesting yes yeah some of my I, i've got stories behind that but it, it is it was very stressful to mm-hmm. watch that watch your parents you know have multiple jobs yeah do you guys remember a story of when you watched your parents suffer for being in ministry and what did you learn from that yeah, I mean, I'll kick off with, um, so my dad's passion has always been evangelism. Um, and so when he worked at Lifeway, it was for a faith department, and their job was to go into the churches and train them how to evangelize. And um, when he moved out to Walter Hill area to become a pastor out there, that was his goal, was to start door-to-door witnessing. And this was two decades ago, and, and that was the way. And so um, that was his passion, was to get the church you know, rallied up and to go neighborhood to neighborhood, door-to-door. And they did that for quite a time. His idea for the church was, hey, on Sunday nights, why don't we change it up and let's just go door to door. They were doing the usual Sunday night sermon, music, and the church service on Sunday nights that we used to have in all the SBC churches. Um, And they did not like that idea. It did not go well. Um, It was voted down. And in essence, he was told, you're hired to preach here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But what they didn't see was he was hired to bring the Lord's message and to bring people to the Lord, right? And so that crushed him, crushed Mm. his spirit. There were, you know, a few deacons, a few people that continued with him Saturday nights, Tuesday. They would find different times throughout the week. But the fact that his his whole church was not behind him with that passion of evangelism, and and you could see if you go back and look, that the church was impacted by that. You know, they were growing from going door to door and and pulling people out of the streets and into that that loving church body. So um, he still speaks to that today mm. of the first time he was crushed, mm. you know, with leadership not supporting what he felt God was really calling him to do. Can, wow. As a child, how old were you about that at that time? I would have been around 10. Did you hear your parents talking about that? Like, that's always the question is how much kids know. Mm. So like when you were 10, did you recognize that, or are you speaking from now, like in re- in hindsight? Good question. Yeah. So bad math. Uh, I was actually twenty. So I was trying to think. I was like, <laughs> where was I? It's terrible math. I'm no longer thirty. Anyway, um, so I was in college, okay. and I was also drawn to the church to help with ministry because I we were. When dad wasn't a pastor, we were in a massive big church in Smyrna. Mm-hmm. And so I was ready to go to the small church and start ministry. And it was it was hard for me to see because I knew I was raised going door to door. I went with dad door to door witnessing. It was a it was a passion of mine too. And so that was really hard. I couldn't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, why why would they why would they not follow you? Don't mm-hmm. they see your heart? Don't they see that God is moving? Why would they say no? Um there's been a few times like that that's just been hard to understand. How did he guide you through that? 
when you would say, why, why won't they follow you? So this is where I think the pastor at home, you know, we have different conversations. And so we would talk about those that are pushing for their own ways. And there were several that left for, for good reason, mm. the church, and allowed us to move through that. And leadership changed and leadership needed to change. And I think what I saw through that is just because a person is a leader in the church does not make them the best Christian. Um, they're still human mm. and they still sin. And so that was the ultimate lesson for me um, that helped me also see just leaders in the business. You know, even though Ben is president, he's is, he is just Ben also, mm-hmm. you know, and so it, it brought a level mm-hmm. of humility for me to just level set everyone and, and try not to put people on pedestals mm-hmm. because they will always fall down. Mm-hmm. Did it affect your relationship with God? It affected my desire to want to serve. Mm. Um, There were other situations where I stepped in to fill a gap. Again, young 20s, you think of Ava. I stepped in as women's ministry director Mm. as a kid, Mm -hmm. you know, put on the first women's retreat. And I I didn't even take economics yet in college. And I got reamed by the leadership team for going over budget and spending too much. And I just remember thinking, you didn't help. You just left me out there. You know, I thought the family was supposed to come together hmm. and help lead each other. So that's instead of like struggling with my relationship with God, I just wondered, like, why aren't they getting it? Why aren't they understanding the family of God together? Hmm. More of the conviction. I think it also drove me because I was so young to to criticize others. Hmm. Oh, Maybe we're not supposed to be this grace-filled. Maybe we are supposed to be harder. Maybe we are supposed to stick to the rules mm. of what pastoring should be. Because and you were criticized, you picked up the critical spirit. Oh, yeah. Oh, Interesting. Yeah. So pastor's kids can become very critical of the church. Um, I was the critical child. Yeah. I, I was, I, I think it's just in my nature too of, you know, telling my sisters when they were wrong. Um, I'm, I'm still the challenger of Lifeway today, you know? And so, yeah, I, I think that, that rubbed me in a way of, you know, God is righteous and holy and I need to make sure that we are too and that there is a right and a wrong. Hmm. Let's make sure we walk that line rather than learning through grace to be more hmm. agile. And, hmm. You know, for me, we didn't, I don't remember stories of of hurt by like a of backstabbing or of an unruly deacon or you know hurt in that way. I don't remember specific stories of a decision that happened that hurt my dad um, or my mom. I think for us, you know, because my parents helped plant and start this church from the very beginning, they started to form and um, invest in relationships very very early on. And they had a lot of friends that were with them in ministry for years and years that just left the church after 20 years that left the church. Um, I would say quite a few mm-hmm. families left the church. Families that, you know, couples that had become leaders in the church, couples that had raised their families alongside of me, like in the in the church, to just leave because of a... You know, rarely because of my dad. In fact, probably never because of my dad, but because of a, a disagreement with another staff member that may or not may not even be there today, um, or a decision related to to types of music that's played in the worship gathering, or a direction the youth ministry was taking, or whatever ways you could you could you could imagine. And I think that 
seeing my dad hurt from those times. You asked the question to Shelly about like, how did that, like, how did you see that? I don't know that, I think it's more of a reflection now than it was Mm -hmm. seeing it in the moment, just seeing my dad's hurt. So I don't know that I, I don't know that I felt that at the time more than I now see that happening now. So yeah. Well, I want to turn the tide just a little bit because we don't want it all to be heavy. Did you Mm. guys have an incident that you can remember or a story to where a church member like was very gracious with your family or, you know, really in defended your dad or, you know, where you were like, man, they were greatly loved in this moment. My childhood was mostly pleasant like memories. I don't, again, I don't have a lot of stories that I can remember of backstabbing and people stepping in really to defend my dad, even in that way. Um, you know, I remember things like sabbaticals that we were given, you know, or I remember the vacations. I remember those kinds of things. But when I think of my family, like being blessed or my, my parents really feeling blessed, it wasn't necessary. It was by individuals, but it was the church as a whole. And I think it happened in times that there was like pain and suffering from from health or or death in the family. Um, so like when my dad's mom died or when my mom's parents died, it was the it was seeing the church like rallying around my my family. You know, I always felt like that people were praying for our family and for my dad, but it was in those moments that I really felt it. Um, even more recently, about ten years ago, my dad had. Um, heart issues, aortic dissection that almost ruptured, almost ended his life. And it's really what probably resulted in him retiring probably earlier than he, than he could have. Um, and it was, it was, you know, we were all grown at the time, but I can remember just the care packages and the letters. Mm -hmm. And even still today, I, 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 cross uh, by someone in, in the grocery store that went to my childhood church and they ask about how my dad's doing. And I always, I never felt like my, my dad wasn't and my mom wasn't loved. And that felt awesome as a kid, you know, as a kid and as an adult now. Um, one other thing that's, that's, that's probably not unique to me, a lot of pastors' kids experienced this was the visitation line after church, yes. um, shaking people's hands. And I would always, as a kid, go up and like hang by my dad because mm-hmm. I thought, oh, you know, he's getting all the attention. I'm going to go and get <laughs> some of this attention with him. And to seeing him shake hands and pray with people and cry with people and to, to see the encouragement and how a sermon blessed them in that specific moment, that was those little moments made me view my dad as a hero. Wow. That's really interesting because our kids want nothing to do with the receiving line. Yeah. They're like not even in the room Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, because they're like waiting out in the lobby and every single person says, hey, how are you guys doing? Yeah. And like, they have to act like they know. That, you, you know? <laughs> they're like, you sure have gotten taller. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, just say something. And they have no idea who this person is. Yeah. What uh, about you, Shelly? Yeah. So uh, even with the incident we were talking about before, there was um, a deacon who became the chairman of deacon and deacons, and he was there the entire time. So he helped rally dad and support him and say, hey, you want to go door to door? Let's go. His name is Mike. He's still there today at the church. Um, in fact, he's been kind of his right hand man. Um, dad went through a lot of um, struggling. I don't know if I'd say mental illness, but like anxiety attacks where he would just shut down. And he felt like he couldn't talk about that to the church. In fact, one time he even mentioned like counseling is good, you know, and then he wondered at the end, like, should I have mentioned that? Yes. Like, I love how y'all have brought that up because I've seen the impact of that being shut down Mm. and not openly talked about. 
Um, and so Mike and Dad, they've been able to, to be that best friend, to have someone that he could open up to, be honest with, uh, go through retirement with. Mike retired first, and so now he's like, okay, Shelby, like, mm-hmm. let's, let's get you a project. You need something to do, you know, and, and helped him just walk alongside him with that sounding board. Yeah. And you guys have talked about that. It's important to have friends outside of the church. And I think, and he's got one other deacon that did leave, you know, you talk about, but mm-hmm. has been that sounding board outside the church. And so it's critical for a pastor, parents in general, to have those strong friends to help carry them through hmm. those times when, you know, I'm the whole, it feels like the whole church is against me. And they say, no, what is Lord leading you through? Hmm. You know, what is God telling you to do? Well, then that's what we need to do. And if they're not up for it on Sunday, let's go, you know, witness it on other nights hmm. and helped him kind of work through those times. Hmm. That's good. So from the mom perspective, you actually just brought this up and said you moved every two to three years until you were, you know, almost 10. Yeah. I think there is such a fear of moving kids constantly um, in the pastoral home. We had that fear. I mean, we ended up, we were like, no, we're not going to move them. Well, we did in fifth grade and like Ava was fifth grade and 10th grade. And so pretty hard Mm -hmm. years. Um, I would say she's stronger for it. And so, but that's Mm -hmm. our experience. And, you know, I'm very curious how other people, if they have experiences of, of moving that was less positive. Yeah, I think it was. So we were so young. I have memories of a few different states, all three girls, and we're all born in different states. Mm. Um, I think in total they lived in five states before I was 10. So Mm. I cannot imagine the stress of my mom. And my mom had a full-time job as a nurse. Mm. So she was also changing jobs. Um, So she wasn't the usual, you know, pastor's wife that's, you know, in ministry, too, because she was helping support. And I think that was the biggest thing was dad was always pastoring small churches Mm -hmm. and so and almost always part time. And so he had to continuously find jobs to help with that. Mm -hmm. So not only was it moving and finding new friends, but then it was also like, do we have money for vacation and how are we going to do these things? And. And they made it work. I mean, that was the amazing thing. But I think for me, it helped me be brave. I mean, I, I and it may just be my personality, but I can make friends anywhere. My older sister, um, she's a vice president in a jewelry company. She can make friends anywhere. You know, um, younger sister, a little different. You know, so it, I think it's also just their personalities yeah. of yeah. what they can handle. The same circumstance can affect two different people yes. in adverse ways. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know. Looking back for my sisters, I don't think that my parents had time to slow down and see us differently. I think like now I'm very cognizant. I think now we're also very cognizant of um, when people have anxiety and other Mm -hmm. mental things that at that time it's like it's a bad attitude and you're just disobeying. And no, they just they can't talk to those people, you know, like talking Mm -hmm. about kids in the reception line. My little sister, she was so shy and crowds just overwhelm her. But at that time, they just thought she just didn't like people and she was being rude. Yeah. You know, you, we've got to be more aware of mm. what our children can do and what, what how God's created them. Mm. You know, I love how y'all have said, don't hold them to a next you know, level um, of expectations because they are just children like any other. So if somebody's listening and considering a move, their kids are, you know, elementary age or higher, would you say to them, take the chance? If God is calling, he's going to provide. Yeah. I mean, we have had – that's the beauty of it. I remember best friends everywhere we went. Mm-hmm. Um, God gave us, you know, perfect houses, perfect friends surrounding us. He provided for what we needed. Mm-hmm. Great hospitals for mom to work in. I mean, he worked all those things out, you know. So, hmm. yes, 
that's the point of believing he's calling you there. He's going to get you. Take care of I'm going to throw this in there. I, I think one of the hardest things about being a pastor is the two hours after Sunday's services. Hmm. Uh, it happened to me this last Sunday. I preached at a church, and I went down into like this pit in the afternoon because there's really this... really felt like that lasted about eight hours. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it lasted the whole... I, honestly, sometimes I have to have a night of sleep to sleep it off. Hmm. But there's just this sense, sense of, I am so inadequate. I did not mm-hmm. preach well today. Mm-hmm. Everything I meant to say didn't come out right. Several people looked checked out. Nobody said anything to me after the sermon, so I feel like this was one of my worst sermons. Like mm-hmm. the inner life of a pastor is one of constant scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And then you add the voice of the critic to that. It just takes a lot of mental toughness. Your dad was in the same place for 28 years. I have so many questions for mm-hmm. him. There had to be so many weeks where he thought, I just don't know if I can keep going. Yeah. So, I mean, how did you see your, your parents even struggle with his emotional ups and downs? So this, I, I love church planning. Um, and so this is the benefit of, of church planning is that you get to kind of start out the way that you want to start out. You don't yeah. have mm-hmm. a board of deacons or other elders or a church that is used to a certain style of music or a certain way of preaching or the, you know, the translation of Bible that you use. I mean, it's, so it's, it's, I think that that's the unique thing. And that's what my dad, dad did. Now he did it back now 35 years ago or however long it was ago. And so it was different then than it is now. But that is the unique thing is that you you kind of start fresh. And from the very beginning, you're not seen as someone, are you doing it the same way that someone else did it before you? And so I think that it was probably, it's, I don't know if it's, if it's even unfair to ask me, they always had that impression of my dad. There was never anyone to compare him to. That's part of the reason why I love church planning is you can kind of do that. Yeah. And start fresh. You're writing the script. Yeah. And so you don't have somebody to compare to. Um, so I don't know if I'm really even the best person But on to the flip side question. of that, we, we have in this generation kind of made uh, church planners to be heroic. And yeah. I, I believe, I mean, I think there is sure. reason to celebrate the bravery and courage of church planners. But in some ways, it's harder to revitalize a church. Yeah. If I God has all, called you yeah, to absolutely. revitalize a church, almost always. And I don't know that we do enough to celebrate people who feel called to stay and patiently and methodically rebuild this thing. Absolutely. Uh, which sounds like there was a lot of that in your yeah. church. Yes. I mean, so we're at the point now, this last year, we've come to a point where we had basically become stagnant for several years. Um, no growth, a little bit, and just a little bit of decline where you're like, weren't there a few people sitting in those pews, you know, a few months ago? And so you see that. Um, and so we we started conversations with local churches. Um, Dad was like, hey, let's, let's see if we can partner up and, like, come together with another local church in Murfreesboro um, and, and learn what they're doing, learn how they're growing, how are they reaching the young, how are they reaching the families. Um, and that did not go well. Um, I think there was a lot we could have learned of how to communicate uh, we've got another young pastor now who's fantastic. Joel knows him actually mm-hmm. from school, and he's learned just to come in and start relationship building. Yeah, um, because you've got to learn the people, um, just like Dad knew them for twenty years, and mm-hmm. he knew if he says something, these few will always have questions. So talk to them first, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you know how you've got to just mm-hmm. work that so that they are in agreement. Um, but still, it's so hard to me to. For the small church to think, I don't know, can unity be accomplished? Like that—that's a—that's a tough spot we're in. Like 
the Bible talks about we should be unified. We should, you know, and but it talks about that with leaders. And so when you've got a small church, the whole church has to be unified. Mm-hmm. They feel, because they're voting, they're still in, you know, their their business meetings and they're voting on every decision. And so for those pastors, you're talking about revitalization for the young church that's used to knowing and agreeing and voting on everything. Mm-hmm. It's the most difficult. You think politics are hard. Like mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> how do you do that? And so so ultimately, Dad came to the conclusion, I, I've got to, you talk about retiring early, and that's, that's what he did too. And I think so many, I've, we've, we've talked about this in the podcast, so many of our older pastors, especially going through COVID, surviving the stress of COVID and keeping a church alive through that, and then coming around and saying, I've realized now we, we're supposed to be changing, and we haven't changed, and so now we must. Um, do they have the energy for that? Yeah. And um, and he said, he said, I'm actually going to pull out so that someone else can come in because I think a fresh voice is what they need. Yeah. So the ultimate question that we love to ask pastor's kids is if you could rewind the tape and choose not to be a pastor's kid, mm. like your dad is just a normal guy. Yeah. <laughs> Would you do that? I'm an identical twin. Ben, you know that. Yep. You talk to them. Um, and I, we get this question all the time. Like, if you were to have it your way, would you be an identical twin, yes. or you would you be what normal? I don't right. know. And and that's an impossible. That's a really a silly question because that's that's literally all I know. I know someone that looks exactly like me, and I <laughs> I can't imagine life not having that. Yeah. And so, you know, in the in the same way, I can't imagine not being a pastor's kid. Yeah. Like I don't have. Um, a parent that's an athlete or a fame, like a celebrity, or I'm not a military kid. I don't know what life is like as any of those things. I know life as a pastor's kid and nor do I really want to know what that's like. Like I, there are so many things that I feel like that are foundational in me because I was a a pastor's kid. Now I'm sure that there's a lot of reasons why I've struggled in certain ways because I'm a pastor's kid, but my love for the church, my, me having like a bird's eye view of of brokenness in the church, but how brokenness can be like reconciled and ha- mm. see the relationships and see um, what a church is supposed to be. I got to see that firsthand. I got to be in the hospital rooms with my dad praying and loving with sick people. I was able to kind of hear about counseling situations that happen, unfortunately. Mm. I was able to to see the love that people had for the church, people that came, people that left. And I think that really helped me have a good understanding of the church. I don't think I would change anything, but I don't know what it would be like if I I wasn't a pastor's kid. I get that. Good answer. Shelly? That was good. Yeah, I think um, I have learned so much about what a servant heart is. Um, I have learned to care. You know, you talk about because especially a small church, you're leaning in and you're helping so much. You're seeing people who are exhausted, but somehow they find joy from teaching that toddler's class. And so I think growing up as a pastor's kid has taught me so much in leaning over and helping someone else and um, wanting for them to know Jesus, to find that joy that we know. There was so much fun and love in the church. I don't know how people, like you said, live without that much love and support. You know, when you talk about moving, how does a family move and not have other people there? Mm -hmm. Well, that's when the body of Christ has to surround them because it's critical. Um, The only thing I would rewrite is kind of what I mentioned before about how we handle 
mental illness or sickness as a whole, mm. about how we try to run the race and push through and not just say, I need help. I need mm. to just throw a flag and say, I'm vulnerable and here are my weaknesses. Here's my family's struggles. Um, you know, mm. my sisters, I was the goody two shoes mm. and not to tell on them, they know, but they, they have become, they were some of the sermon examples, mm. you know, with prodigal children. And that's okay mm. because everyone's child does, you know, so don't judge them more, but just know that everyone's going to struggle at a time. And mm. so, so I think that's the biggest thing that I would rewrite is is trying to pick up on is it ADHD? Is it anxiety? Is it any of that stuff that's causing us to struggle? Hey, guess what? Your kids are probably struggling with this too. Why don't mm-hmm. we talk about this together mm-hmm. and raise us up and come together around it? So one last question for the listener. What advice would you give to pastors and wives out there raising kids kind of in the throes of it that would be encouraging for them? So... Shelly, you just mentioned it. Like, that's the stereotype is that the pastor's kid is either rebellious or they're the perfect pastor's mm-hmm. kid. I mean, I've heard yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I went to union, tons of pastor's kids. That's that's mm-hmm. the, the stereotype. And it's interesting, like, when I look back at me growing up in the glass house and, like, like how did I see myself? And so I, I grew up seeing my sin and feeling rebellious but also feeling the pressure to act like the perfect pastor's kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I just became good at acting, to be honest. Like, yeah. I, like for me, as a, as a pastor's kid, it was just easier and more convenient. As bad as that sounds, it was easier and more convenient to be, to be religious outwardly, but rebellious inwardly. And so I felt like everyone was always looking at me, like waiting for me to mess up, um, because I was always front and center. Like I was always on the front row of the, of the church pew at, at church on Sunday. I was always either doing special music or on stage or even in like an illustration for my dad. Or, or I was always the designated pastor at the youth-led you know, worship night or the, an actor in Judgment House. You, know, you name it. I was always <laughs> front and center. And I've got stories about yes. that we'll share Judgment later. Judgment House. There's a whole episode <laughs> well, on Judgment House. Yes. How did we just get to that? Yeah. <laughs> But I was always like, I always felt like front and center. And honestly, looking back, I would say that the sin in my life wasn't any much different than the sin in like my kid's life now. But the weight of my sin felt so heavy because I always felt the eyes like looking at me on, on Sunday morning. And so... So I didn't have really many chances to be vulnerable because I was always afraid of not being seen as perfect. And so imagine the sin and, and, and or the shame and guilt. And, and I know that that's a long way, like that's a big setup to say that probably um, the biggest advice that I could give is just to, to help manage that tension like with your kids. Or really I'm, even be aware of it. Like yeah. be aware of it and let them have the freedom to have that conversation with you. Yeah. Like to have the opportunities to, to, to mo- first of all, to, just to model that, that vulnerability and confession with your kids. You know, like even early on in my relationship with Jenna, with my wife, like I, I remember she would say, she would tell me that she was intimidated by me in some way because she, because I appeared to be like the perfect pastor's kid. And of course, now she sees the sin in my life. She wouldn't say that now. But <laughs> but, but honestly, I think I was still really good at acting as an adult. Um, and so that's the biggest piece of advice based on my like hmm. 
tension growing up. That would be the biggest piece of advice is to help model that. Help give your kids opportunities to confess sin, model confession, model vulnerability, be a safe place for them to confess sin. Um, I always try to find ways to, you know, to, to, to apologize and to confess. You know, with my parents, this may sound weird, but it's, it's, it's true. I never saw my parents. I, I knew that they fought. I never saw my parents fight. In fact, it's hard for me to even really identify sin in my parents' lives. Um, but my, my kids don't have that same problem with yeah. me. Let me say something here. Yeah. Um, what you just said about pastor's kids having this burden and they need to confess their sin. You know, Scripture yeah. says, confess your sins one to another, you'll be healed. Yeah. How can a pastor's kid get healed of sin that he feels like he can't confess because it'll ruin his dad, right? Yeah. So we were at Fuge last week. I was speaking at one of our camps, and we've had a son that's gone through some rebellion this year. Yeah. And I was preaching on hypocrisy, and I asked him if he would be willing to sit up in front of a room full of kids and mm. confess what he learned about being a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. And he agreed to do it. Wow. Yeah. And spent the day writing down notes in his Apple notes and came yeah. up there and just spilled it. Mm. And I, I think it was, if no one else in that room felt any healing from it, he did. Sure. Of just being able to say, like, I am like everybody else. I was faking it with my parents. Yeah. And here's what I learned that. After the first lie, the second lie is easier. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and it was a really neat moment for us as parents to watch Max like express his need for the gospel. Sure. But I do think pastors, kids, like everybody else, need a place to come clean yeah. on all their stuff. And we've got to give them permission to do that. Yeah. I mean, part of that for me is, is working out the religiosity in my own like past, like working that out mentally and, and for me. But... But yeah, I, th- I think that not that necessarily my parents didn't give me that space, but I I I would have wanted that opportunity yeah. to be vulnerable and to confess in and to feel safe with someone to do that with. Yeah. Mm. So I'm going to come to you, Shelley. But here's my last question on that. Yeah. What would a parent ask their child? Like, how would you phrase that question to give your child permission to confess sin without being like, okay, spill it. I know you're a little liar. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, for me, for me, again, back that to my work. parents, like I didn't, I didn't really see sin in their life. And so I, I, so I didn't have a really good framework in that mind. My, my, again, my, my kids don't have that same problem. Okay. They see me yell. They see like they, you know, and I, of course I'm not, the, my advice is not to yell at your kids so that you can model confession. Um, but I think that if they see their dad, like for me, for instance, that's a ministry leader at Lifeway or that that's a, a lay elder at, at their church that also sins, I think that's huge. That the fact that they know that that their dad or their mom is a sinner mm. because they see that confession. So I think it's all modeling and that's I think good. it's all that. But giving Showing space, them how to do it. Showing them how to do it, but then also asking them, um, showing them in the way that they confess uh, being mean to each other, like my girls, when they're mean to each other, not only do I ask them, like, all right, we, we need to do some apologies and forgiveness here, but also that they can actually confess that they were wrong. Because we know that saying sorry is sometimes just getting over it, but they also they cringe when they have to say, okay, I was also wrong. I'm yeah. sorry, and I was wrong. That's good. And so when I come to them and I say, 
like Lindley, Caroline Ellison, I was wrong. I sinned against you. I sinned against God. Not, not me, s- Lindley. <laughs> not you, Lindley. Clarify. My daughter's, Lindley. My daughter's name is Lindley. Lindley. Yes. yes. Sorry. That's yes. okay. So Lin- my daughter, Lindley, and Caroline and Ellison, I can say, like, I sinned against you. I sinned against God. I am sorry because I was wrong. Will you forgive me? That gives them an opportunity to practice that back to you and That's to really each other. Good. I think the key here too, because this was that was actually my number one, and I was like, "Why did the Lord give me two? Now yeah. I know." Um, so <laughs> I stole it. Easy, yeah, I mean, but it 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 carries with you. Mm-hmm. So there have been sins in my life that the devil will still, you know, you can't do X because you have sinned in that. You were not perfect in that, yeah. and you cannot admit that because you are a pastor's kid. Yeah. You know, and so he he carries that baggage and just kind of like waves it over your head, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's one of the confess and release it. I think is mm-hmm. the biggest thing too, um, for the kids to learn mm-hmm. to not let that go and or to let it go and and for parents too to show them that. You know, we, we're going to forget that. We're going to throw it as far as to the sea. That's really good. So the other thing that I would add, um, especially growing up in a small church, is you are raised to help. You're raised to lean in. Somebody needs help. You, you jump in and you do that. Um, ministry is good, but not every ministry is for you. And so I think it would be helpful for kids to learn as they're growing, what is it God's ordained you to do? Um, you know, my dad was constant. If someone called from the church, you answered. Even if you're in, you know, eating or whatever, you are always on call. Mm. And so now I'm always on call. I do that for work. I do it for church. I do it for everything. I didn't learn boundaries. Mm. And so that's the most important, I think, to teach. We, I heard always growing up, I had this conversation with my dad just recently. You, you kept saying, run the race, run the race. And I'm exhausted. Yeah. You didn't teach me how to Sabbath. You know, I, did, I didn't learn how to really take the break. And, you know, even as a pastor, you've got to rest after you preach. When do we rest? So I think that's really important um, for the pastor's kids to learn, for their families that they're going to do, whatever job they choose, you know, to set those boundaries that God's called you to do certain things, but not all the things. Yeah. I think this is so interesting because he, in 18 years of pastoral ministry, never had a, a, a sabbatical. Never. Uh, I mean, there was not a year that you didn't preach probably all but like four weekends because oh. mm. just the the fallout people would be like man we brought our friends to hear you you know cuz mm. you're so good and you aren't there and so it just put this pressure on him and then at the end of storyline we were called to lifeway but you were struggling with a lot of you were exhausted like you were not burnt out yet but you were getting there and i do think that like we just didn't have any boundaries of like we have got to rest here's what people don't understand when you're a plumber there's weeks when you love plumbing. And then there's weeks where you're just like, I kind of wish I wasn't a plumber. <laughs> but plumbers don't have to stand up every Sunday and talk about how much they love plumbing. Yeah. And when you're a pastor, yeah. like there's just weeks where you're like, I have to preach this Sunday and I just really am not enjoying my life right now. Mm. And it feels like hypocrisy. Mm. And so it's really hard to be in ministry and continually stay up for everybody when you're having your own downs. Yeah. That's just human nature. And so when your family sees that too, like I worry about my kids, like do they think I'm a hypocrite because they haven't seen me enjoying Christ this week? Mm -hmm. But then on Sunday, here comes dad. So I've always been concerned that my kids see the duplicity in my life because in some ways, when you show up on Sunday, you put the face on, you preach the sermon, you go home because that's what you're paid to do. There's no other profession I know that's just like that. Which is why I think the glass house is important, because I think it's a unique group of people that carry that burden every week. 
and there's some unique challenges. Yeah, you're always pastor. Like my wife is a pharmacist, but whenever she leaves the pharmacy, she's no longer a pharmacist. She doesn't have to answer the questions. But as a pastor, you're always a pastor. And so, uh, yeah, finding finding opportunities and mm-hmm. Sabbath in those moments and protecting your family in that way as well. Yeah, that's Taking huge. those sabbaticals. I mean, same for my dad. And then he learned, oh, yeah, pastors do this. Like he didn't know that churches were supposed to give him a sabbatical. And so, I mean, you could tell your kids know when you're tired, you're not preaching as well. Yeah. And, and I right. used to be that voice of encouragement. Dad, you need a rest. You need a sabbatical. Just trust me, it's not going as well as you think. <laughs> like take a break, you know, <laughs> do it for you. Do it for the church. Yeah, that's good. That's funny. <laughs> The Glass House is brought to you by Lifeway. It is produced and edited by Angie Elkins with help from William Hall. Sound engineering by Donnie Gordon. Artwork by Heather Brzezinski. And photography by Rebecca McVeigh.